Thank you for inviting myself. So, I'm Robin Golan, and I am going to give a version of the talk I gave that many of you already heard, for which I apologize if you're here for Rocky II, basically. Um, and the same guy wins the fight at the end, Tony. Um, and I blame Sharon for this because she missed it the first time, so then I felt obligated to give it a second time. And I'm going to tell you about type 1 diabetes from the vantage point of a historical perspective because of an unbelievable uh, occurrence of two cases of type 1 diabetes that occurred one a lot of years ago and one quite recently at the Berry Center. So this is Amelia, and the family has eagerly participated in this presentation, as I'll tell you. Emails when there are new pediatric patients. This is an abstraction of an email from Michelle. Uh, from October, and this adorable little girl uh, came to the Berry Center. She is eight old. She had a week of polyuria and polydipsia. She was found to be in mild DKA. She was treated uh, with IV saline, some insulin, got two units of margine. She had a very supportive family. And the history was taken that her great-grandfather had type 1 diabetes. Hospital overnight, I believe, only because it was the weekend. Our pediatric patients and our adult patients, even those in mild DKA and some of them in more severe DKA, are these days managed uh, as outpatients at the Bears. I'm going to contrast that with her grandfather, her great-grandfather. Um, and as Amelia and her family walked into the Berry Center on a Monday morning with Mary Pat Gallagher, the pediatrician, uh, they said to me, this is the family of Amelia, and this is her mom. And her mother says that her grandfather was one of the first people that treated with insulin at our hospital. So many of you who have gone to medical school here know that um, this is a history that we're pretty proud of, that we were very much involved in early uh, treatment of, of people with type 1 diabetes with insulin. And Robert Lerb, who was the chairman of medicine, the father of John Lerb, was involved in these patients. And many of the charts of the early patients were passed down to John Lerb and then given to me when the Berry Center opened. I have the chart of this one man and all of the rest of them in my office. And Dr. Lerb gives what is among the best lectures in medical school. He gave it to me in 1978. He continues to give it about this little boy, Man Edwin Mannheimer, who got admitted to our hospital in November of 1922. And he is a very famous little boy at our institution. So there's Mary Pat. And there's this very cute little family. And mom says her grandfather was one of the first people to get insulin at our institution. And I said, well, he wasn't. Edwin Mannheimer, was he? And she said, why, yes, I'm Karen Mannheimer. And I said, well, he was a lovely man. He worked, volunteered for the Boy Scouts. He started a perfume and fragrance business. And she said, I now run the family perfume and fragrance business. And now this is the first case since then of type 1 diabetes in the Mannheimer family little Amelia, age eight. And so I'm going to take you on a somewhat historical journey on the difference between what happened 
to Mr. Mannheimer and what happened to Amelia, 90 years apart. And just to give you a context here, because I think we do forget this, on the day that Amelia came in, uh, and until the end of October, Mr. Mannheimer's wife was still alive, her great-grandmother. And so all of this, un she died at the end of October in her 90s. So all of this unfolded in the lifetime of one person. And uh, when I gave this talk in, um, at Medical Glen Rounds, um, I was really thinking about it from the vantage point of type 1 diabetes. It's unbelievable history. And somebody else that I know who heard it, who's involved in, because of another family member with a significant genetic illness, he to say that at a support group where there was great discouragement and the families all said, this is lethal, it's always going to be lethal. Name one example where something that used to be lethal isn't lethal anymore. And he went, wait, I just heard grand rounds. This used to be the case for type 1 diabetes. And in 1920, prior to 1922, children with type 1 diabetes died. And now they're Supreme Court justices. And if that's possible in that illness, that's possible in our illness. And it's an interesting perspective, but I think we do lose track of the progress that has been made. But as I'll tell you, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. OK, so I am going to give you a historical perspective based on what happened to the two children. So in, up until 1922, type 1 diabetes was a fatal illness. And then insulin was first used in people. I will characterize the, the era between the early 20s to 1995 uh, as one in which we considered type 1 diabetes as a devastating illness. And I remember this pretty well. This is the era in which I went to medical school and started my early training. Some of you are too young to remember this, which is a good thing. This was the era of inevitable diabetes complications, where diabetes was perceived and was, in fact, tragic. 1995 to the present, we now perceive type 1 as a chronic condition, manageable, livable, almost diabetes light, but not quite, as I'll explain to you. And looking toward the future, what do we tell this little girl and her family? The future holds for her, brought to you by some people in this room, perhaps. Are we looking forward toward the cure? And will that cure be immunologic, technological? Will it come from stem cells? And because we're at Columbia, I'm going to give you a pretty egocentric view of our role in this whole story. And now, having done some research about this, I found some shocking things that I will share with you. Some things that I thought we discovered, turns out we didn't actually discover. So that was pretty amazing. So I'm going to tell you about Columbia's earliest contributions earliest DKA studies done in our hospital. I'm going to give you my vantage point of why it is that we were a very serious and famous of anti-type control for diabetes. I'm going to tell you about my version of type 1 diabetes in the current day and what we're doing toward curing it in the future. So in 1914 and earlier, 4 percent of people with type 1 diabetes died in a year. The cause of mortality was DKA. Morristown, New Jersey, Ellen introduced the Ellen diet. 
I'm going to try to get this right because Dr. Lurb corrected me. It's a little nervous as I am today. At Medical Grand Rounds, I said that children were fed butter and undigestible nitrocellulose biscuits. So that would be biscuits made of film. What they were actually fed were cellulose biscuits. So correcting that for anyone who heard this talk the first time. And children who came down with type 1, uh, the mortality in the first year was reduced to a little less than half in the first year. But inevitably, patients died. Uber of 1920, experiments of 1921, Oslin writes to McLeod proposing human. Dr. Joslin I rather hesitate to attempt to report on the findings at the Physiologic Society. I must say privately that we have something that will be of real value in the treatment of Possible. So I have been going around using our work in islet imaging with Rudy and Paul Harris and Matt Creeby at Quingus as possibly the world's fastest translational research. Run really quickly from the bench to the bedside. Of 21, uh, Jocelyn wrote to McLeod proposing human treatment. They presented at a meeting, and the next month they gave the first human insulin. So that might have been a little faster than us. August of 22, Jocelyn, in August of 22, the first patient received. I also kind of forgot that possibly Columbia had been in the forefront of diabetes before the Berry Center got here. And it's like it really was. So here is Edwin at admission. He had been did with the Allen diet and was admitted Admission note. Diabetes for the past, I think it's six years. He had glycosuria, Dr. Galen, diagnosis diabetes, hospitalization. So this is Dr. Richards, who went on to win the Nobel Prize for cardiac catheterization. In what was almost certainly the first medical joke I ever heard, John Lurb says every year that Dr. Richards went on to win the Nobel Prize, not for this workup. <laughs> John Lurb reports that his father said that they wrote to Bantam for this little boy in 22, and with roots and twigs. Giving it to the patients was nothing short of miraculous. Plotted the first seven or nine patients at had meticulous flow sheets of everything that happened to these patients. And for those of us who took care of patients in the old Presbyterian Hospital, this was done on the old Metab ward. And when I was an intern, we still admitted people to nine Metab. 
And Arvi, who taught many of us how to make flow sheets for diabetes, would have been proud, and she probably learned it here, the blood sugar wasn't first. I will share with you the discharge note of this patient's 10-month hospitalization. Remarkable example of the value and use of insulin in diabetes developing childhood. He was admitted in November of 22, weighing 30 pounds, skeleton, so weak he could hardly lift his head. It was found he needed a large amount of insulin requiring 60 carbohydrate in his diet. Once again, I did believe that we had invented the insulin to carbohydrate ratio, so apparently not, but we forgot it. We had to reinvent it. The part tell his story as well as anything could. I tend 60 pounds. August 9th, because they were and then they backed off with his food, 55 and a half pounds. And that's what he looked like at discharge. So we talk about writing up our clinical experience and how we really have to get it together. And they did it in several months. So in 1922, and cases in 1922 were reported. My carbohydrate and food tolerance could be decreased. Body weight could be achieved on periods of time without ill effects and up to or nearly up to. Us convincing people of insulin. Program involved in outlined involved the determination of more or less important details. Time relation to food, hydrate, number of grams of carbohydrate in the presence of a given number of other details which as yet received little or no controlled study. So I believe that the diabetes educators in the room will agree that this is pretty much what we do. And that this is now on the insulin pump printouts. I'll show you one. This is like. So by 1923, the one-year mortality had been reduced to 4%. 46 of 48 insulin survived one year, and 3,000 patients had been published here, uh, a detailed study of electrolyte balance following the withdrawal and establishment of insulin therapy by Batchley and Lerner and Richards and Benedict and Driscoll. I'm not sure who they are. Brought the patients into the metab ward. They gave them insulin. They withdrew insulin. They gave it back. I believe that Foster and McGarry had, I don't know, we knew a lot of this in the 20s. Um, they segregated the disturbances based on Harvey, William, writing in Classics in Clinical Science in 1980, observations demonstrated loss of body water, sodium, and
family provided me with a paper written by young Edwin, who now made it through childhood and went to the University of Pennsylvania. And he wrote in his expository writing paper a required autobiography. I would like to point out for being among the world's first humans treated with insulin, he received a grade of, grade of A minus. I'm not sure what you needed to talk about to get an A. Um, and he talked about how during his entire life he had become, he had been under medical care. In August, his doctor informed his mother that his case was hopeless. And he should be with them very long. Dr. Banting of Toronto, that I owe my life. I was sent to Dr. Galen, who sent me over to The doctors and nurses marveled at the fact that I was still alive. I was nothing but skin and bone. Then reported, which was in fact in the chart, that on July, they tried to give his insulin orally. Again, I thought this was kind of more recent while, but apparently not. So they took away his sub-Q insulin and they fed, him, fed it to him orally. He, as he wrote, I promptly lapsed into unconsciousness and didn't uh, recover until July the 8th. So it was discovered that insulin really couldn't be given orally. So he had a 10-month hospital stay. He went to volunteered with the Boy Scouts. He married he had lovely sons, both of whom I have met. Blind in his 30s, he died uh, of a heart attack uh, at the age of 49. The kids were pretty young still. And his story, um, while miraculous, was recapitulated pretty much time when um, type 1 diabetes certainly wasn't fatal generally in the first year, but microvascular and macrovascular complications were arguably inevitable. I recall many arguments on rounds when Sharon was an endocrine fellow uh, and I was a medical student over the glucose hypothesis, whether the complications were part of the disease and glucose had nothing to do with it was one theory. And there were lack of insulin options, there were limited technologies for monitoring. And interestingly, in 1922 are the seeds of where everybody came out and how insulin was going to be used. And at the Joslin, they that you should abolish sugar from the urine starting in the 20s. At Columbia, other observers' personal communications. But we have chosen to allow a moderate glycosuria. So for those of you not familiar with urine testing, you don't get glucose in the urine until your sugar is much above 240 in most people. So moderate glycosuria is probably a glucose above 300, so this was the goal, because they were lessening the possibility of insulin overdosing with its disagreeable and sometimes alarming symptoms. Earlier stages, we made an attempt to, main a to maintain a consistently sugar-free urine, but we got a lot of insulin overdose, and so we backed off. I understand from Dr. Lerb that his father, Robert Lerb, even then knew that what we were arguing about was not tight control and loose control. It was awful and god-awful control, according to Dr. Lerb, and that at Cornell, uh, that he felt we were the bastion of awful control and the Cornell was more of the bastion of god-awful control. And the Jocelyn was the bastion of hypoglycemia is worth it uh, with no data. So now we start to get closer to the future. We have and 
correspondent to the glucose, but we don't yet have the data that came in the diabetes control complications trial. So what we had were regimens that involved one or two injections of insulin in a day, and every couple of months, one of the pediatric nurses or nutritionists at the Berry Center asks me, what is regular insulin? So it's a new era. Had rigid rules for composition and timing of meals, only had urine tests, normalizing the blood sugar was unsafe and of unknown benefit, and everybody's A1C, when we were finally able to measure it, was 11 to 12, which was a blood sugar, as you would expect, in an average blood sugar in the 300s. And there were inevitable eye and renal complications, and especially with the kids, since the only insulin we had peaked in the late afternoon after school, so you couldn't really easily do sports, or you would get hypoglycemic, and you had to eat. And you had to take the insulin, wait an hour to eat. You had to eat at specified times. Nobody did that. The adults didn't do it. And so there was inevitable noncompliance. So in 1995, for the first time, and this was like a, a meteorite on the type 1 diabetes landscape, for uh, better glucose control was, for the first time in type 1, shown to reduce the microvascular complications a lot, quite a lot. Uh, retinopathy by 76%, nephropathy by 57%, neuropathy by 60%. And as the time goes on, in type 1, as opposed to type 2, it also appears that uh, aiming toward better glucose control also in type 1 reduces vascular disease as well. Now we have life for people with type 1 diabetes and their clinicians and their researchers after the DCCP. Um, I like to think that the approach at Columbia was a scientific one, that there's now evidence that you need the team, that you need to control, it's really hard to do, that there's still a lot of work to be done, and that we need the clinicians, the scientists, the nurses, the nutritionists, the patients, a place. And we established the Naomi Berry Diabetes Center in 1983. Close collaboration between the scientists and the clinicians and the patients. And actually, these little scientists are, in fact, patients with type 1 have, are contributing toward work in their own illness. Other institutions had a somewhat less mature approach to the publishing of the DCCT. And this was a button that people uh, wore at the Joslin, which said, I told you so, E.P. Joslin. And so, yeah, they were right um, that better glucose control prevented complications. <laughs> And I have this button, if anyone wants to see it. It's displayed at the recent Historical Society exhibit about the discovery of insulin. So this will be familiar to those of us working with these families now. We do have the means for achieving close to normal glycemic control with limited hypoglycemia and limited weight gain. Help them the weight that they've lost, and we all are working now. Um, we know this family. And we still see 10 and 20 pound weight loss in children and adults who this, where the symptoms are uh, not recognized. Back their weight without usually overshooting because we have better insulins and better ability to reduce the hypoglycemia to reduce the insulin with exercise and to better match with the pump and with carbohydrate counting um, rather than sliding scales. An A1C under 8 is widely achievable with self-management. 
based on the DCCT, we tell patients that if you can achieve an A1C under seven, your risk of getting an eye disease, kidney disease, heart problem less than one in 100 patient years. See very little in our meticulously controlled patients uh, who we start out in the beginning with, and people who've had it 20, 30, 40 years who've had good glucose control, they're perfectly healthy. Their eyes are normal, their kidneys are normal, their feet firmly in place. However, it's really hard. And I will tell you a little vignette in a moment that what we ask the families to do is hard. And sitting at our side of the table where the families, they're doing it at home and they pass over the data and you're well rested and you see what they did and you get to circle it and question it, that's a lot easier even though I have to say I persuaded myself that I was quite a genius at this. If you have to do it yourself, it's scary. And there are a lot of variables. And most of you know that one of my family members got type 1 at 11 months. And based on my one week managing him by myself alone without his parents, there's no way that his blood sugars, which I thought would range between 70 and 120, and they were mostly between 40 and 400. Um, his average blood sugar corresponded to an A1C of less than seven. It was hard, unbelievable. And it was hard on the family, and there was no knowledge deficit. There was too much information. And what we ask these families to do is hard. However, there are huge technological advances there are smaller meters, there are tiny lancets, little tiny blood samples. I could tell you, from again, from personal experience, that you could check a child's blood sugar in the middle of the night. He doesn't wake up. You, however, are up the whole night. Because once you've done it, and you give the insulin or you don't give the insulin, then you have to see what happened every hour or two, all day and all night. Uh, even though I know that we tell the families not to do that, once you have the data, it's really hard not to do that. There is, they're downloadable, there's wireless communication with the insulin pump that no longer looks like this. Like this. And they're little, some of them don't have tubings. And the insulin doesn't look like what I showed you from 1922. It doesn't even now mostly come in a vial with a syringe and in tiny little needles. It's gotten a lot of easier. So once again, I believe that the Berry Center invented the team approach to diabetes, but Dr. Joslin, all, not just people with diabetes, in our life's journey depend upon the horses, insulin, eyes, and diet to draw our chariot. But we are often poor charioteers. The diabetic cannot trust his instincts as a guide. Any place of it must depend upon dietitians, doctors, until he understands disease. That's unbelievable to me. So here's the data that you can now get. So this is not me managing my little cousin. This is somebody who knows what they're doing. And so this is one of my young adult patients who's a genius. Look how many basal rates this person has. They're also wearing the glucose sensor. Here's two days where, I don't know if it projects that well, the highest blood sugar is 155. And and the excursions with the meals are nice. I mean, they look like what a non-diabetic person would look like practically. This is hard. What does type 1 diabetes look like 
in everybody now. So this is un non-randomized, un non-selected with a huge bias data that I'm going to show you. So we are participating in, and in fact leading the country, in first ever registry of people with so we're aiming to enroll 100,000 people, enroll 70 diabetes practices, we're up to 55. The goal is to serve as a personal health record, a platform for study recruitment, to serve as advocacy, and this is how I sign up all my patients. One at a time, I can't beat up the insurance companies, which they certainly need, but with 100,000, then we could maybe stop fighting to get approval for insulin for pregnant women with diabetes or for test strips for children. The state of Washington recently announced that there's little evidence that glucose monitoring in children with type 1 uh, is effective and they're proposing not to pay for it with Medicaid money. And so this now can provide some data. The caveats here is that probably the people who are doing the best are the first to sign up for this. The people who are doing the worst are hard to find. It will eventually include a patient portal, and it is compliant with all regulations related to confidentiality. Uh, Ellen Greenberg, uh, Amy Kurland um, are leading our, the Berry Center effort, and we have are leading the country in recruiting the most patients. So when I put this together, and the data hasn't changed, but we're up to many more patients, uh, this was 2,500 patients. I think we're up to four or 5,000 now. Half female, half male, 87% Caucasian, roughly 40% uh, kids, 60% adults. 80% of the patients got it as kids, but 20% got it at older than 21. As Lauren Golden and others have reported, 15% of these 21 and older were not started on insulin at diagnosis because they were thought to have type 2 diabetes, which is very difficult for these patients. 32% were pretty new. And as you look at the data I'm going to show you, more than a quarter of them had it for decades, 20 to 50 years. What did we find? Additional autoimmunity is extremely common. 30% of the patients who signed up had type 1 diabetes in another first-degree relative. GAC was present in 5% of the patients. Hypothyroidism was present in about 5% of the patients, but 14% of the relatives. Now, this is not verified by lab tests. This is just asking people. Area Center study, 78% of the patients had a second autoimmune disease in themselves or a first-degree relative. And now that I'm asking even more specifically, uh, it's higher than this. You have to come right out and say things like, does anyone in the family have alopecia areata? If you say autoimmune disease, they don't know what that is. They say no. And then when you list them, they might say no. And if you say alopecia, they say they never heard of that. How about anyone's hair fall out? That's just from stress. It fell out in these little round circular areas. Um, and a patient the other day, when his sister had that, um, then in the office he called his mother, she had it too. Uh, very common when you look for it. Here's how they were doing. This is 2,500 people. A quarter of them have had diabetes 20 to 50 years. Nearly 80% of them said that they, since diagnosis, never had DKA again. 91% of them, and this is what you would expect based on the DCCT data and the fact that the A1Cs are getting better, and I'll show you that, had no nephropathy. Now, again, there's a sampling bias because people on dialysis 
undergoing transplantation are less likely to go to a diabetes center, and we're not finding them, perhaps. And 61%, despite these great outcomes, reported no significant hypoglycemia, requiring assistance from others. So this really is among the first data to see what common sense would tell you. And now we're presenting this at the ADA, I believe, and to the state of Washington, that the more you test, the better your A1C is. And look how great the A1Cs are. Um, it's amazing. So if you test 0 to 5, um, no, if you test uh, 0 to 2 times a day, your A1C is 8.2. If you test 3 to 6 times, you know, you're in mid-7s. 7 or more, 7.1. 10 or more, 7. And that is what we see. And, that, and this was by pump and meter downloads. This isn't by self-reported data. And... Uh, not many people are testing 10 times a day, but nearly 1,000 people of the 2,500 are testing seven or more times a day. Uh, people on the pump had overall better A1Cs than people on shots. And this one, again, validates what anybody who takes care of these patients Little ones are managed by their parents and their A1Cs and the teenagers and adults, but still pretty respectable. And everybody grows up, which is remarkable. And their A1Cs are And something that we're starting to see, which was impossible, is there are hundreds of people with type 1 diabetes in this database over 65. And now we're starting to deal with type 1 diabetes and forgetfulness, type 1 diabetes, where a spouse has never dealt with this in 50 years, some of the same issues that come up with the management of the toddlers emerge, but the parents understand that that's their job. The wife, not so much. And the patients have opinions that the toddlers might have, but we ignore them. Harder to ignore the 78-year-old psychiatrist's opinions, goofy though they may be. So now we come to the outpatient management of little Amelia, as opposed to her great-grandfather, who spent 10 months with us. She spent a day with us in the hospital and two days with us at the Berry Center. Then she went back to second grade. She recently went on the pump. She came as a flapper for the Halloween party. And she is talking about donating a skin biopsy for a project that I will show you. And the thing that she found the coolest about a tour of Rudy's lab was the mouse pooped five times. Um, diabetes is not really in the top 10 things that she's thinking about, which is a tribute to the team of caregivers that are taking care of her. So is insulin life support? Um, people with type 1 are healthy. Their life expectancy is increasingly close to normal. The complications are preventable, largely. It's stressful. It's expensive. It's time-consuming. Not everyone can do it. And not everyone can achieve an A1C less than 7 to 8%, particularly those with socioeconomic and psychiatric barriers to self-care. And I have to put myself in the last category. I needed counseling from Dr. Gorfinkel after my week. Um, my husband said, I don't understand why you can't sleep when I do his blood sugar and insulin in the middle of the night. I go, you're a surgeon. Internists know what you guys know about insulin. And that's really scary that you're so confident you're, don't, you're an idiot. Um, and he said, well, if I'm mixed up, I ask Jake. I go, he's six. Um, and the, the conflict that this potentially could cause in the family and the worry 
And I lost track of that. I, you know, and when I started to say this in the office, some of the families went, no, no, we count on you to say, this is fine, you could do this. And it's a fine line between, well, insulin is not life support, but I have, you know, we all knew that these families and patients are heroic. It is hard. And it was more hard for me than for Jake, who at one point said, you know, when things aren't going well, my mom and my dad sometimes check my blood sugar every hour. Are you doing it more than that? Oh, well, just in the beginning. Um, but, you know, I got a little better. And, you know, my husband, the surgeon, said, here's the thing. We should have had two meters so that we could download the one with the good blood sugars. Because uh, you're going to have to go back to work. And I said, well, we can't lie about it. Like, we immediately turned into, I know these patients, and I am them, because he's a big blabbermouth, you know? So, you know, his parents called, and, like, thankfully, diabetes wasn't the first thing. He was having a nice vacation. But when asked, he said, yeah, Robin's having a really hard time. My blood sugar went to 400. <laughs> So the bar for the cure in these patients is high. We do take a great care of them. So this young lady was on American Idol, which the young people here know what that is, not me so much. This um, man is a patient of mine. Um, and after the catastrophe in Haiti, this man donated his plane and his piloting abilities to orphanages in Haiti uh, because that was the right thing to do. His pilot's license is very much intact. For Russia, I went, you never heard of the Bahamas? Why would you fly that plane to Russia? Um, you know, Supreme Court justices have diabetes. People really can do it. This uh, is a little girl whose family donated my professorship, for which I am eternally grateful. She's fabulous. Are we going to immunosuppress her for her whole life? This is my cousin's baby when he was first diagnosed at 11 months. On the other hand, these children are looking at a lot of years of diabetes, so it's hard. So in the last few minutes, three minutes, what is the plan to try to cure this? And we need to cure it. Not because the patients are going to have terrible complications, just because this is too hard. It's better. It's a lot better. But it's certainly in no way, shape, or form good enough. So there are, we know a lot more about it, about predicting who's going to get it, especially in the first degree relatives and possibly then trying to intervene. And if we measure your antibodies in first-degree relatives, if you have a lot of antibodies, you have a high chance of getting it in seven to 10 years, offering the opportunity, perhaps, to interfere with the immune destruction. But like I said, the bar is high. We can't hurt these people in the process. So we're working hard to understand what exactly is going on in the autoimmune attack of the beta cell. And it's complicated. And where is not going to come tomorrow. And balancing the hype from the hope is, again, a, a very fine line to tread with the patients who really want to see progress made and who could blame them. So as you know, there are autoantigens that trigger an immune response, and there are misdirected T effector cells that kill the beta cells. There are a few approaches that interfere with the immune system in people with type 1 diabetes. I show you one here, rituximab. Interventions have modest effects for 18 months. They preserve beta cell function. Stop doing it, the beta cell function deteriorates. 
So here is an anti-CD3 slide. Now, there have been a couple of studies that didn't show an effect, basically, and a couple that did. But we're not talking about a cure. We're talking about slowing the rate of beta cell destruction for a year and a half if you stop the treatment. Tolerance has certainly not been a therapy that you could give, then stop, and the honeymoon phase is preserved forever. Anti-CTLA-4 uh, works in this way. Anti-CD3 probably works this way. Tuximab works this way. And at the ADA, we'll hear if immunizing people with uh, GAD, which is one of the antigens that people make antibodies to, whether that works, I'm betting it will work at about the same not-so-impressive magnitude. On the other hand, there is evidence from the BCCT, for sure, that anything you do to preserve insulin secretion early on is associated with less hypoglycemia and fewer chronic complications later on. However, at what cost? So, Tolerance rather than immune suppression is the goal. A few agents produce temporary, modest effects. Should we be combining them? Risks will go up. Will the benefit go up or just the risk? Maybe what we need is just a lot more beta cells that if you could outrun the immune attack, that maybe they could still you could be like somebody who's got positive antibodies to your thyroid, but you're euthyroid. So this, these are slides from Dieter Egli. One approach would be try, since getting a huge supply of beta cells is a problem, is to try to develop um, specific first embryonic stem cells and then beta cells by doing skin biopsies. We've done 100 at the Berry Center in our patients. And he and colleagues are increasingly successful through a variety of means in generating embryonic stem cells and then making cells that a cell-like and make insulin. And when I say this in the office, patients cry. These are people that haven't made their own insulin in 20, 30, 40 years. Give these cells back to the patients. Possibly you'll have to then still deal with the immune assault if you could get over the technological problems of making whatever they're doing in the lab safe to give to the patient. But at least in mice, these infant-derived beta-like cells make insulin and reverse diabetes. It's exciting. I'm not going to close this. I am just going to end again with our patients. They're doing well. They're working hard. And balance between the risk of intervention and the risk of me babysitting for him and you know 90 years of type 1 diabetes they haven't yet turned into teenagers and it gets harder and then it gets easier uh, and is it appropriate to tell patients that I take care of people who've had type 1 diabetes for 50 years. Little Amelia, it's unlikely that she will have it for 50 years. I actually believe that that's true. I hope that that's true. Because not everybody can do it. So this is a much more likely common download of a patient who's doing his best. I don't know if you could see that on one day with the 0.7 glucose determinations a day, 
there was a blood sugar of 500 and something, and then nothing for a day or two. You know, it works out. Um, this is somebody who's not going to do well, has a lot of barriers to self-care. And again, we didn't invent this. So in 1932, I don't think he was talking about the surgeons, but uh, insulin is a remedy primarily for the wise and not for the foolish, whether they be patients or doctors. Yeah, it's hard. So this would be my future plan, and I am here with Meryl Eastman, the little girl who was flying up there in the corner, and she made a little book about diabetes, and she wrote, No More Diabetes, Please, would be a better place without diabetes. I'd like to close by thanking everybody on this slide, the clinic, my clinical collaborators who do an unbelievably heroic job to take care of these wonderful church team um, works with us and it's a privilege for us and the patients to be able to participate in these studies. We are doing a trial where patients with type 1 diabetes are volunteering to undergo bone marrow aspirates and the cells are going to Megan Sykes. And a young man who's not wealthy came in, had a bone marrow aspirate, got his reimbursement, and donated it to the children that he saw in the waiting room because it was the right thing to do. It's really a privilege to be part of this effort. And I'd like to thank all the people who fund us and the Mannheimer family who gave us all the pictures and allowed us to use their name and their story, who said that, that they have been contributing to science and that they will contribute as long as this disease is still occurring and that they hope that Amelia will be the last member of the Mannheimer Happy to answer any questions, or I could answer them down here. Anybody have burning questions? Yes. Lauren is our resident expert. <laughs> so this is in the Hasidic Jewish community.
So there is a, this brings up a huger area of diabetes and just thinking about arts and the schools and camps and it's difficult plus we've made it kind of hard so it's complicated to care for these children and people are frightened and the Barry Center pediatric staff spends a lot of time working to overcome prejudices so the kids could have full normal lives Thank you.